Last week, I said that I like stories and most people like stories and the response I got regarding the two stories that I started last week, well, specifically the illustrative story, really impacted a lot of you. And I told you that I would come back this week and fill in some of the blanks. If you weren't here with us last week, I started to talk about the story of this man. If I got it on, get it on. Alvin York. Alvin York is a World War I hero. And I said last week that I would give you more information. I've always been fascinated with World War I. I don't know that, is anybody here, raise your hand, does anybody here know, know anybody that fought in World War I? Nobody, you, you do, okay. You do, you do, a couple people do, all right. Because my grandfather fought in World War I. And it's always been something that has greatly intrigued me. But this man, this man was from Tennessee. He was born December 13, 1887, in a log cabin in Paul Mall, Tennessee. He was the third of 11 children, and his father dies in 1911. And his responsibility at that point is, I've got to be the one that takes care of the home. He only gets nine months of schooling. He's basically working the farm and then going out and hunting, and he really does become an expert hunter, and especially as I tied in into last week, an expert turkey hunter. He is somebody that when um, he comes back from World War I, ironically, even though he doesn't have much education, he will be very, very uh, plugged into trying to promote education in Tennessee, as well as bringing much advancement technology-wise into the rural area in which he lives. He'll bring roads, electricity, plumbing, etc. He is very much a remarkable man. He was given over 90 medals that I cited last week, but I don't know if I made it clear. Well, I didn't, I think. 90 medals, but like 30 or 40, something like that, were given by other countries. Because as we said, what he did was critical in bringing about the conclusion of the war. And so this would be a little recap for some of you who are here, but for those who weren't, it was on October 8th, 1918, that he was in the Argonne Forest. And the Argonne Forest was on the Western Front. And the Western Front is this area here, and as I cited, that there's a book, All's Quiet on the Western Front, and there's a movie, All's Quiet on the Western Front, and I think they just remade it. But in this forest, and I don't have the picture from last week, this was the area where more Americans died in World War I than in any other area. And today, there's a cemetery with over 14,000 United States soldiers who died, okay, at that, uh, at, at that place. And on October 8th, 1918, Alvin York is in a forest, and what happens is all of a sudden, at 6, maybe 6, 10 a.m. in the morning, he, with several other soldiers, were directed to take command of a position in this forest because they were being pinned down by the Germans. The Germans had multiple groups of machine gun um, placements 
that were just wiping out his, 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 his uh, fellow soldiers. And he was told to basically, hey, you're gonna, you know, we're going to start here, all right, and I need you to go up around on the side and get this. This is the hill, and I need you to take your men with you, and we're sending men from the other sides, okay, and we're sending men from this side. Well, these people almost all get wiped out. And York has out 17 men coming with him. And what happens is over half of them get killed. The others get wounded. And what begins to happen is absolutely, absolutely one of the greatest stories ever because York's heroism results in 25 German dead, and the capture of 132 more. For his efforts, he was promoted from, in the field from corporal to sergeant, and that's where we get the idea of he is Sergeant York. And he was given the Distinguished Cross, which was loved, later upgraded to the Medal of Honor and awarded to him by General John J. Pershing, i.e. Pershing Rifles, if any of you ever heard of that group. When I was on campus, it was pretty prominent because of a good friend of mine being involved in it. There are two things that we, we wanted to emphasize last week, and I want to emphasize again, is that when York is going through this, this underbrush, and I, let's see if I can go back, okay, what happens is as he's going through the underbrush, he believes that he is being led by God. If you weren't with us, it was in about 19, I say 16, 17, when York is a young man, his father has died because of being a drunk. His father is somebody that doesn't have uh, any religion in his life, but his mother does. And York, after his father dies, does provide for the family, does continue to be somebody that um, is, goes out, does the hunting, but he is a wild party animal. And he is regularly in the bars drinking. And it's around 1916, 1917 that his best friend gets killed. And he comes home, and when he comes home, his mother says to him, do you want to end up like your dad? And it makes him think, and he presents to him, you know, his mother has presented him the gospel, and he gets saved. And when he gets saved, he later tells people that it was like a light of bolt, a, a, a bolt of lightning hits me. And his life becomes radically trained, changed. And he begins to be, what, in, from the perspective of being led by God. And the reason I'm telling you this story, because tied to the Bible story, the second story we're talking about, the book of Esther, is we're talking about how God has this invisible hand on people. And the remarkable attributes of what he did on that day are so phenomenal that, that they were unbelievable, okay? And there is this movie that's made of him. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I cannot reiterate enough that they were so unbelievable that the generals of the United States, after World War I ends, which was on November 11th, which we just celebrated a couple weeks ago, that used to be Armistice Day, now it's Veterans Day, that the generals could not believe that he did what he did. And so they basically 
take him back to the site that I showed you where the underbrush was and, and say, if we're going to give you the Medal of Honor, you've got to prove it to us. And when they are walking through the, the, um, the underbrush and you know, the area, it's on February 3rd, 1919, with Brigadier General Julian Lindsay and a host of senior officers as part of an investigation to determine whether or not York's feet merited the award of Medal of Honor. They spent the day walking an entire area and were retracing the route of the patrol back to the friendly lines when General Lindsay stopped short, looked York in the eye and said, how did you do it? And this is the response he gave, which I said last week. Sir, it is not man's power. A higher power than man guided and watched over me and told me what to do. And I think he is an incredibly humble man. What, what he did was phenomenal. And when I was younger, <laughs> Becky and I were first married, relatively, we had my, my daughter, Ellie, who was in town this weekend and had to drive back because, you know, get the snow going all the way to Nebraska. But her father-in-law, Matt, and I and Becky on Saturday nights would watch the t- TV show um, Texas Walker, te- 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 you know, Walker Ranger, Texas Walker Ranger, or Texas Ranger Walker. Was what, Walker, te- Walker, Texas Ranger. Anybody ever watch that show? All right. There's a pretty clean show. It was just, but it was where he did some remarkable feats. And at times, though, it got to be over the top. And one of the things that really finally made me say, I, I don't know if I can continue to watch, was one day, Texas Walker Ranger is after these bad guys. And he comes into the warehouse. And as he comes into the warehouse, what he does is he finds about 100 plus men with submachine guns. And he says, okay, I'm going to get you. And he starts tumbling. He doesn't have a gun, by the way. And before you know it, he has subdued all 100 people with machine guns. And I said, there is like no way. I mean, I've been watching this stuff. I've watched when he's jumped out of airplanes without parachutes and jumped onto the other guy that has a parachute. I've seen him do all kinds of stuff. There is no way you're going to be able to overcome 100 guys with submachine guns. I'm done. And I said, stop watching it. What you need to understand, York goes with his 17 men, and all of a sudden, he's got half of them. And what happens is he decides to start hunting them like turkeys. Not from the middle, but from the end. He starts picking them off. At one point, eight Germans come running after him. He doesn't have any bullets left in, his, in his, his rifle. He takes out his pistol and boom, 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 gets all eight. Doesn't miss. It's just like, this is crazy. You've got all these machine guns that are flying, but bullets are flying because they see, they see him being, coming at them and they're missing him. So what happens? How does he capture 132 men. This becomes even more incredible. What happens is, as he kills the eight, he's already killed others. Altogether, I think they say he kills 25. But what happens is, is all of a sudden, as he's, as he's coming upon a group of Germans in a, in a hole, 
who've already thrown, but get this, they threw a grenade at him. The grenade, I mean, this is like Texas Walker Ranger stuff. The grenade falls at his feet. He picks it up and throws it back. <laughs> All right? So now he comes upon this group and he's shooting them, the Germans, and all of a sudden one of the Germans speaks in English. Stop, we'll give up. (laughs) And so he's like come upon a group of eight Germans in a machine gun hold and the the English speaking, it's like a corporal, it's like the leader of the Germans says we'll give up. And so the eight guys give up. Now they start walking down the road and York's, they're still shooting, York's tells the German corporal, scream to those other eight guys to give up. And he stands behind the corporal, the German corporal, so that if they started shooting the machine guns, they would kill their own corporal so they wouldn't shoot him. So now those eight guys come down. Then they walk down the road. Now there's 16. They get down a little bit further, and he go, they go to another group of eight, and they're machine gunning. He stands behind the corporal. The corporal yells in German, come on, give up. And he goes all the way down. And before you know it, he's got 132 prisoners. And it was, you gotta imagine, it was harsh, scary, terrifying. Where this comes up is in talking about his humility. His story becomes so incredible that, that he is offered, after he comes back from the war, after there's an article in the Saturday Evening Post, I believe that was it, the magazine that went around the whole country at that time. He is offered, at that time, $50,000 a year to tour around and tell his story, and he won't do it. He wants to go back. He wants to serve in his community. He wants to live a quiet life, and he won't do it. But late in the 1930s, he finds himself in debt, and debt can be hard on people, and Finally, movie producers come to him and they offer him $169,449.84 to make a movie so he can pay off his debt. And he finally relents. And when he relents, he pays off his debt. And you know what he does with the rest of the money? He funds a Bible school. He's an incredible man of God. He is phenomenal. Now, this movie that gets put out, these are different, um, different uh, either from DVD covers or movie sli- slides on the cover of the, what the movie was about, is that this becomes, at the time, one of the most fascinating movies, most interesting movies in American history. So much so, I think, I, I, it, it's a little bit over $2 that they aggressively charge the ticket price, and it becomes the highest grossing movie of all time, at, up to that time, in 1941. And Gary Cooper, the actor, plays him to a T. This is York in real life. And he ends up becoming, um, Gary Cooper becomes the individual who gets the Academy Award for Best Actor over Orson Welles, who was in the um, 1941 movie uh, Citizen Kane, which is today still considered the greatest movie ever made. Now, why I want to really emphasize this is because I saw this movie when I was 12 to 15, and it still has impacted me. It's a great story, but the thing that's fascinating for me as I've become a Christian is that 
this movie, which is a tearjerker, which is very inspirational, very much was a, was a great impact in my life of a, being a man of character, is to make the movie more interesting, they fabricated things. They fabricate things how he gets to have the Germans pop their heads like turkeys. They fabricate things like that he was a conscientious objector when it was really his mother. I alluded to that last week. They, they fabricate that his conversion was due to a lightning strike with lightning coming down hitting a tree when in actuality he said it was like Jesus hit me like a lightning, okay? Why do they do that? Because they want to make things more interesting and they want to make things flow and they want to pull you in. And why I am telling you about this is because what you need to remember as we're turning to study the book of Esther is that the book of Esther is not a story. And there's nothing in it to be fabricated. What we need to understand in this day and age is we are being overwhelmed. We are, we are in an era when the majority of churches today believe that the Bible, especially the stories of Esther, Jonah, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all fabricated and that they put things together so so that they would pull you in. And a good friend of mine just did a paper and if anybody wants it, you can email me. I'll send it to you because it's kind of a little bit more challenging one, but I digress. Has any of you ever heard of Greco-Roman biopics? Probably not, but it's becoming in churches across America, the explanation, when you look at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the reason they have differences, the reason that there are stories that are seeming so like extraordinary that Jesus did is because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took the style of the day, which were Greco-Roman um, um, biographical writings and where they you know, would want to make a general so much greater or they want to make the king so much greater and they fabricated things. And so right now that is the common thought that that's what's happening when we read the gospels. And that simply is not true. And it's simply not true when we come to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, this book that is about how God had his favor first and foremost on the Jewish people is also a story of how when you're faithful, God has his hand on you. And that's why we went to Psalm 30 and we talked about God's favor. And just, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter one, just just, just we walk through it. In the book of Esther, there we go. If you have never read this story, I greatly encourage you because it's in Esther chapter one, verse one, that it says, now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. We know historically who that king was. And this occurs, the story of the book of Esther occurs over a 10, 11 year period. And it occurs between about 484 BC to about 473 BC. Some of your Bibles might have the King Xerxes, but it is a true story. Everything in in this account is true. In chapter one, we look at the sin that sets the tone for the entire book as the king is somebody that is trying to prepare for war. We know that historically. And through this process, as he parties, he gets too drunk and he gets rid of his queen. Many people think that she was executed. Chapter two goes into the story of how this Jewish woman (coughs) who was hiding her identity 
absolutely hiding her identity because we went back to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 talked about how there were lies about the Jewish people. Lies about the Jewish people. And you got to go through that. Those lies, because we understand that chronologically, were happening over maybe a 20 to 50 year period. So Ezra recounts them and you think, well, maybe these were like back to back. No, those are like a 20 to 50 year period. And through this beauty contest that Esther will win, that is not a beauty contest per se, but really a very perverse sexual contest, she gets picked to be the queen. It's not a Cinderella story. It is not a love story. And I kind of digress. Last night, Becky and I took our daughter downtown. Um, she wanted to go do down something downtown. And you, you, as we went downtown, there was this truck. This, this, I don't know. It wouldn't be the size of maybe like an ice truck or something. But it had, a, uh, it had billboards on it. And it was all about how the Jews are killing children. And it was all about how the Jews were, were responsible for everything that's happened over there. And anyone that saw that would have thought, oh my goodness, it's the Jewish people, it's the Jewish people. And they were going through downtown. And many of you have even seen today that we're seeing people riot all over the country, all over the world, bringing, let's bring problems, you know, let's, let's persecute the Jews for what they have done. That's the environment that Esther is living in, all right? So we go to chapter three, and this character comes into the story, the evil man Haman. And Haman has this plan to wipe out the Jews. He's going to exterminate the Jews. And why is he doing that? Well, we we believe because he was an Amalekite. His family history uh, was one that basically uh, had a history all the way back to the exodus and because of that when mordecai esther's cousin will not bow down to him even though haman is the second most powerful man in the entire world at this time he gets so furious and so manipulative that he cons the king into making a plan that we're going to wipe out all the Jews. We've estimated there's 12 to 15 million Jews who are going to be wiped out. As we came to chapter 4, when the story comes out, basically what happens is there's incredible anguish. People are ripping their clothes. People are just overwhelmed with the reality that there is now a law in place that all the Jews get killed in 11 months. Esther, being the queen, who's not let anyone know that she's a Jew, is challenged by Mordecai, go in and talk to the king. Go talk to the king. Tell him what's going on. Tell him what Haman has done. She responds with a great line that basically she understands if she goes into the king unannounced, she could be killed. The king has done this because he doesn't want any sadness around him. He also is very aware of assassination attempts. And he doesn't want to bring a wife in when maybe he's entertaining other women. And he doesn't want anyone maybe sneaking up on him. So Esther realizes that she could be killed. But Mordecai gives her that famous line. And I keep taking us back to it. So go look at it. Look at at 
Esther chapter 4, verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. We take that last line, that she's been given royalty because God has sovereignly had his hand on her. And she has to have some aspects of character because when she comes into the king, we go into chapter five, when it's terrifying, when she stands before him, we go into chapter five, verse two, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Favor, God's favor. And the first half of chapter five was how we saw as the story played out, God's favor is present, Esther's faithfulness in action. Esther had to believe God. Listen, she could have lived a life of ease, but she risked everything. She stuck her neck out. She went out for the, 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 the people, her fellow Jewish people, and she also believed God. And so this comes in a character when, when I believe that she was somebody that was committed to God. And how do you know that? Because before she goes in, she fasts for three days and three nights. She tells other people to fast. You, the genius of this book is that the book of Esther never mentions God's name. Because I find the genius of this literature, not that it's made up, but it was designed to get us to think. And we have to recognize we're in a spiritual world where the invisible hand of God is seen. And, and, and the invisible God, hand of God is active. And that's why we've talked about Psalm 91 with guardian angels. We've talked about entertaining angels unaware in the New Testament church in Hebrews 13. These are not things that are made up. These are realities and truths that God is involved in our lives. And Esther, Esther, Esther believed that. That's why she fasted. It wasn't fasting just to go on a diet. She was fasting, I believe, to pray. We saw the irony of this book is how Haman threw the dice in chapter 3 because he was appealing to the invisible hand of his God. And as Joel accurately said, with this animism and this way that people often, from unbelieving perspectives, say that they believe that there's spirit levels all around us, Haman was appealing to that too. Give me the right date to kill all these people. But Esther was somebody that we saw risked everything. And as the story plays out, we saw, as we looked at it, that Esther asked the king for a banquet and no one is told exactly why she asked for then a second banquet, but she does. Other than the fact, as we can speculate uh, from the perspective, that she doesn't want anyone else around. She wants Haman just to be the only one there when she exposes him. But what happened as we went to chapter 5, verse 9 and following, is we started to look at Haman. And Haman is a man who does not know God. And this is the thing for all of us to understand and let people know. Haman is somebody that had everything in the world 
but because he did not know God, he had no peace. Look at verse nine. Then Haman went out on that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble against them, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. And Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zerah. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. And Haman also said, even the Esther, the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. Yet all this does not satisfy me Every time I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate, then Zeres, his wife, and all his friends said to him, here, have a gallows, 50 cubits high, made, and in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. So then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now remember, he could have killed Haman. Haman could have killed Mordecai at any time. But his rage and his... And, and his and his, his hatred of the Jews caused him to put the whole plan into place. And when we talk about this, this man that's losing it, God's favor is absent on him. When a person is losing it like this, they don't have the control. And his pride is going to give him no peace. And I wanted to take you to just one passage as, I, as, as, we, as we talk about this. As, as we look at this story, um, is that we talked about the fact, I'm gonna get the right passage here, I'm gonna look at my notes for a second. Uh, oh, okay, all right. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter, tra- chapter 12. I'm just gonna take through a couple passages that I wanted to add that we didn't get to last week. But the book of Proverbs in chapter 12 has these pithy little sayings And in chapter 12, verse 2, here's one that we all need to recognize. And Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2 says, A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. There are times when people have plans. One of the things you need to know, Satan is a planner. Satan sets people up. Satan dupes people. I'd encourage all of you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when Paul tells the church, hey, be aware of the schemes of the devil. But what you see with Haman, he doesn't have God's favor. And a good man, a good man, you'll, you become a good man because we all sin and will fall short of the glory of God when you become a believer and you, you're living faithfully. So a good man will obtain favor. Haman is losing it. And so what you have... In this story is he prepares this gallows. And this was the picture that we have got these from release from stone cuttings in Persia that where that the gallows, if it was 75 feet high, was probably built on a platform and it was a stick that they would not, they would just stick right up the back of an individual and they would writhe in pain for a couple hours to a couple days. This was the first form of crucifixion the Romans will take what the Persians do and make persecution with, with the cross out of what these guys do. 
So we know this was like historically the way they did it. It wasn't a noose like when you saw like in an old Western. They were going to basically put Mordecai on one of these poles. So as we go through this story, what we wanted to do was talk about the fact that we can learn things. We always want to remember in the book of Esther, the big picture is how God is always going to protect the Jewish people. We got to always remember that Satan wants to wipe out the Jews because God's plan is to bring salvation through the Jewish people. And if Satan can wipe out all the Jews, he will, he will thwart God's plan. So whether it was through the Amalekites or whether it was through Haman, whether it is through, through Adolf Hitler or through the coming Antichrist, Satan has always tried to wipe out the Jews. And so besides looking at what God is doing with Israel, we talked about these principles. And the first one that we talked about was fearing pride. If you're still in Proverbs, I want you to turn to this passage because I said, like I said, I have just a few passages that I didn't get to last week where I actually wanted you to read them and, and, and comprehend them. And in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, as Solomon's throwing out different pithy little statements, he gives this one in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. Pride is when you think more than yourself, think more than, more than you ought, thinking that you've got the whole story. You, you, you're somebody that thinks you've got it down, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. If you're prideful, you need to understand it needs to be something that you repent of and turn from. We went through these 15 attributes that this pastor Alan Park came up with, and I'm not going to go through them like I did last time, but you assume you already know something when someone else is teaching. You see yourself as too good to perform certain tasks. You're too proud to ask for help. You're feeling the need to consistently teach people things. You're talking about yourself a lot. And so Alan Parr, pastor out of Dallas Seminary, great, great website. You think you're better than others who are different or less fortunate. When you disregard the advice of others, when you are consistently critical, your consistent need for attention and affirmation, you're unable to receive constructive criticism. And so many people came up to me last week and they're saying, Mike, these were sometimes things that I do. I guess we all can see ourselves in this. And, and, and the ugly reality of sin is that it impacts us even as believers. And we need to be aware that pride creeps into our lives. And so being overly obsessed with your physical appearance, unwilling to submit to authority, ignoring people's attempt to communicate with you, and justifying our sin instead of admitting it, and then name dropping. That's, those are ways that are just 15, and I added the 16th, is that you ignore God's word. See, I really want you to be thinking about the fact is God's word something that I am reading? Is it something that I, I am someone that basically recognizes I need God's instruction? Look at just past week. How often did you take your Bible out? How often did you read it? Don't be prideful. Prideful people say, I know life. I know how to live. But then we talked about this, the second principle. No God, no peace. No God, no peace, which is tied into, you can also say, no Jesus, no peace. 
And the passage that I didn't get to last week is from the book of Isaiah, and I want you to turn there. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter, uh, where is it, 40, yeah, 48. Isaiah chapter 48, Old Testament book, and I want you to see this and own this passage. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has 66 chapters. It was written by a prophet around 726 to about 680 BC. It is right before the, 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 the northern 10 tribes disappear and about 80 years before the Babylonian captivity. God has promised that they would be taken, the Jews would be taken by the Babylonians. And as you come to chapter 40, he begins, though, to promise them that they will be restored. And he wants them to understand he's going to take care of them. And in this context, though, he's describing the, the, the battle that's out there. And he says this. And he says, um, did I got it right? Did I got the right passage? Uh, is it 48.11 or 43.11? Somebody help me. Is it? 43, oh gosh, I, in my notes I've got the wrong thing. It says, there's no peace for the wicked. Sean, do you have it? You don't know it, do you? Okay. Somebody gets it. There's a verse in here that says there's no peace for the wicked. Um, and I turned here and I read it this week. Anyway. What, oh, it's verse 22, thank you, thank you. So you jump down and where God says, there's no peace for the wicked. As he's going through this and he's, he's, um, he, he's describing the people who are against him. And here's the reality. You always need to know with unsaved people, there's no peace. They have no peace. And, and when we look at the story of Haman, there was no peace. If you go and you study and you read about Sergeant York and you read about his life, there is the reality that he was in the bars and he was fighting because he had no peace. Not until he comes to Christ. We need to promote Christ and the benefits that people can have peace. There is no peace for the wicked. And the only way to know peace is to know Jesus Christ. And we went through the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone, and that is what we need to promote. The third principle is avoid vengeance, knowing that God is watching. And turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And I find in Romans chapter 12, if you're familiar with it, it is this incredible section of scripture that has told us that we need to be in in. in Total commitment to God. Remember chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse one says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is the way Christianity is. Christianity doesn't have one foot in, one foot out. God is asking us to be fully committed. And when you come to chapter 12, verse nine, there are 25 attributes that are given Look at verse nine, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And it's bang, bang, bang. These are like not to be lost. You know, as I've stressed before, we come to these lists and we don't just blow them off. We need to recognize that these are characteristics that God wants us to be held to. He talks about that verse 10, we're devoted to one another in brotherly love. We give preference to one another in honor. But look at what happens when you get down to verse 17. 
He says, never pay back evil to evil for anyone. Respect what is right in sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then here in verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the idea is, is that we have to be people who recognize that God is going to be the one who takes vengeance. And, and, and what it takes is for us to believe these four things. Number one, that God knows the exact penalty deserved. All right? God knows the exact penalty deserved. Haman should be able to say, Mordecai, you're an official. You deserve, you, you, you should give me respect. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Not kill Haman for something, not have Haman kill Mordecai for that, but he goes overboard, not so overboard so much that he's going to kill all the Jews. God knows exactly the right penalty, and there's a sense where we've got to trust him. That's why he brought in the commands, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Two, God knows all the facts and both sides. He is sovereign, all right? You are not. Proverbs always talks about one man seems right until a second man comes along. So when the second man comes and says, wait a second, you don't know the story, and you say, well, yeah, I do. I heard the first man. You're the one that's wrong. <laughs> you know, you, you don't know the whole story. And, and so we also think, oh, I know all the story, so I'm bringing my judgment upon this man. You gave me the first story. I'm bringing my judgment upon you. The king in this story gets Haman's side. Hey, there's a people who don't trust you, don't obey your laws. King never says, well, who are they? Let's find out what they're doing. What's their side of the story? No, he says, we're going to kill all of them. Well, listen, the king was wrong. And anyone that only takes one side of a story is also wrong. Number three, God wants us to trust him. One of the greatest acts of faith is not taking revenge in your own hands. And because we watch a world with the Dirty Harrys or the Rambos, maybe from people from the current era, where we see revenge is so wonderful and it tastes so sweet, but the reality of it is, is we need to recognize that we have to watch out because of the incredible truth that when you take revenge, you dig your own grave. And I want to show you that in the Bible. I, you perhaps have heard that before, but will you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs, I mean, Psalm chapter seven. This one I knew I got right. Um, Psalm chapter seven. In Psalm chapter seven, this is a Psalm, this is a Psalm of thanksgiving, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, the Lord is implored to defend the psalmist against the wicked. And as we come to this Psalm, Come to verse 14, and I'll pick up verse 12. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. What, who is he? He is God. He's going to bring revenge. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. So this is what the wicked man is doing. Verse 15. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and he has fallen into the hole which he has made. He's dug his own grave is what he's saying. Isn't that interesting, that expression you always hear? It comes from God's word, like the apple of the eye comes from God's word. His mischief will return upon his own head, and in his violence will descend upon his own 
pate, which is a <laughs> fancy word for saying it's his own head, okay? All right. Lastly, well, from Haman's life, we saw that when he came down and he's telling, he's bragging about his family, he's telling about how great his family is, his whole family, his wife, his friends basically say, you know what? You ought to kill Mordecai. And I want you to turn to this one passage because I want you all to see it because the reality of it is he does not get godly advice. No one who says, wait a second, maybe you're a little bit overreacting. Why don't you go talk to Mordecai? Why don't you go find out really what's happening? Why don't you go find the other side of the story? Why, don't you, why is Mordecai not bowing down to you? No, 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 I, I know the story. I know everything. I know what I'm going to do. And, and when he tells it to his family, they all say, you're right. You ought to kill him. But I want you to look at who you hang around with does matter. And every parent wants their children, as I was talking to a parent this week, to follow this one verse. As the apostle Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection and how we're supposed to live changed lives, he says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And that is a truism. You need to watch who you hang out with, who are the people you're associating with. Haman follows the advice of the wrong people and it cost him because the gallows that he has built will bring about his own death. He will be killed on that the very next day. Why? Because there's the invisible hand of God. Now, does every criminal, every wicked person get away, not get away? No, no. (laughs) Read Psalm 73, that's a different story there. But you and I need to recognize that in the big picture, God is in control, and as he's watching things, he wants you to make sure that you have good friends. So as we wrapped up, we talked about, as we, you know, why did I bring Sergeant York in this? Both stories dealt with the lost, where everything seemed lost. Both stories took great acts of heroism, Sergeant York as well as Esther, and both helped the Jewish people. And you, if you weren't here, you say, well, how in the world does Sergeant York help the Jewish people? Well, it's because through the victory of World War I, we know that the British and the Allied forces destroyed the Ottoman Empire, which I step back and I'm blown away. Because when you say Ottoman Empire, I'm thinking 1200s, 1500 AD. How in the world is the Ottoman Empire still around? The Ottoman Empire went all the way until 1917. It was the end of World War II that basically brought about the Turkish control of Israel. And it was through the victory of World War I, the Allies, that Israel begins the process of getting their land back. So fascinating. So my hope, my desire, is that you think through these principles, that you think through your own pride, you think through your own relationship with God, you think through how you have had situations where you want to bring vengeance and you're saying, I'm going to trust God. And then I want you to think about who your friends are and who you associate with. Bad company corrupts good morals. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the stories that you put in your word that we know are true. The stories of Esther, Jesus, Jonah, all of those stories are true. And we thank you, God, for the fact that we're not teaching a fairy tale that we're speaking truth. And I pray, Lord, that as we proclaim truth, especially about the gospel, that everyone believes it. May we be a church that continues to be shine brightly in this dark world.
And we once again pray for the protection of Israel in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, in your bulletins, not only is there the poinsettias that you can get ready, but the men's Bible study is coming back this Tuesday. Um, Midwest Creation, the missionary prayer night is the big one that I want to point out, okay? On the third. Next Sunday night, all right? So at this time, the men will come forward for the morning offering. And as they're coming, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you first gave to us. We are very thankful for all that you are and all that you have and all that you've provided for us. And now, God, as we come, may we give to you and may you bless our church. Amen.